Hey, it's Doug Bursch, and you're listening to another edition of the Fairly Spiritual Show. Today I'm going to talk about a secret. Now, it's not a secret in the Bible, but it's a secret in that I hardly ever hear pastors, Christians, theologians talk about it. It's the power of human capacity. Humans are so wonderfully made that God actually limited the capacity of humans. He actually divided humanity to keep us from harming his creation. We'll talk about this amazing story on today's show. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through. dreams with you. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about today's show, and actually, this is going to be controversial for some people, and I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm just trying to honor uh, the scripture. Now, there's a, a whole theological, we're just going to get into this right away, okay? Uh, there's a whole theological tradition that is so concerned with certain things that the Apostle Paul said, certain theological convictions or truths or doctrinal distinctives that they've made based on the writings of the Apostle Paul, that they interpret the entire scripture around those doctrinal distinctives. And they do this with such a strong emphasis on certain scriptures that they miss other scriptures in the Bible. At least that's my opinion, that they either miss other scriptures, just overlook them entirely, or they force other scriptures to fit into their preconceived doctrinal distinctives. Now, at some level, we all do this, and you might find me doing this during this show. But I want to focus at the revelation that God has given to humanity through scripture. We know that first the Old Testament came to us, and then the New Testament. And as Christians, or or for me as a Christian, I, I believe in the Word of God. I believe in the Old and New Testament is God's revelation to humanity. And I believe it's important how God first revealed himself to humanity. And I don't want to just take what the Apostle Paul said or what is said in the New Testament and throw out how God first revealed himself to us in Scripture. And this is what I want to focus on today on today's show. And uh, some people might say, why is this important? Well, I think it's crucial because I think if we don't have a biblical view of humanity, we won't understand why God created us, what our capacity is all about, and what our purpose in living is all about. The Bible starts out, and I've been talking about this on this show, uh, because this is one of the focuses of the book that I've just written called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. Uh, the Bible talks about the tremendous power of humans, human capacity as individuals, and human capacity in community. We are powerful beings in community. 
In our last show, I talked about how when sin enters the world, it divides community. And I decided to make a special chapter in the book I wrote on God dividing community, because we don't talk about this much, but that humans are so powerful and so dangerous that the scripture says that God limited human capacity and divided human community. And I bring this up because there are people who, and and I'll just get at this, there's certain theology that has this very low view of humans. And and I think what happens is we get confused with the righteousness God, the righteousness of God, and the capacity of humans. The Bible talks about this. In Genesis, it starts with, let us make man in our image. In our image, let us make man. And so it says actually four times, humans are made in God's image. And we are made to be fruitful, to multiply, and to have dominion. That's the first way that humans are introduced. We're introduced as being made in God's image, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion. And then when God creates humans, God says, very good. That's that's how the scripture introduces humans. And then today we're going to talk about other things that the scripture says about humans. And the scripture in Genesis talks about humans as incredibly wonderfully made, incredibly powerful, and incredibly dangerous. However, what you'll find in the modern era, and ever since the Reformation, there's been a stream of theology that starts with talking about humans in terms of this, that humans are worthless, humans are totally depraved in the sense that they have in themselves nothing outside of God. You'll, You'll see they have nothing, like they literally have, there's nothing in humans that has any value or, or meaning, or anything that's good, or anything outside of God. It's this very low view of humans to lift up the righteousness of God. Now, I believe clearly that the scripture says that Jesus Christ is our righteousness, but there's a difference between God being our righteousness and then suddenly looking at humans as not having value. The Old Testament does not start in any way to say that humans don't have value. In fact, we are imaged, are made in God's image. We are, In fact, God doesn't, you understand that God didn't take from a substance outside himself to make us. God took of himself and created us. We are made to image him. And even though we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we certainly aren't righteous, and we can certainly be dead in our sins, we still reflect the image of God. We might be marred in that image. We might be twisted in that image. But we've still been created to be fruitful, to multiply, and have dominion. And I'm not pushing this because even after the fall, even after sin enters the world, God looks at humans and he doesn't see these weak, anemic, worthless human beings. What God sees is these incredibly made human beings that are also incredibly dangerous because they're doing things in their own will and they still have tremendous created capacity. And often there's a theology that's out there that without God, you can do nothing. And that's simply not true. You can do amazing things without God. You can do amazingly harmful things without God. And you can do some pretty uh, cool things without God because you've been imaged in some way to express God. You, You have been, and we know this, like there's amazing music that has been made by people who don't honor God. There's amazing art that's been made by people who don't honor God. That humans have been made in such a way that we can express God. We express God in twisted ways. We express God 
in corrupted ways, but being made in God's image, we can do amazing things without God's help. The very fact that life comes through us is an expression of God. You don't have to love God and you can have a baby. My friends, that is a miracle. Right there, is a, that's a miracle. That's not, nothing good can come from me. The fact that people can come together and have a baby means that you can be the most depraved person on the face of the earth. You cannot follow God. You can curse God. You can spit at God. You can cuss God. And God has still given us the ability to have a child. And the fact that you can have a child is one of the most miraculous things that anyone could ever do. And God doesn't take that miraculous ability to image the creator by creating things through our own bodies, even when we don't follow him. So humans can express the wonderful, miraculous power of God without following God. And this is so important to understand because there's a theology out there that says, no, you know, without God, you can't do anything. You just, you can do nothing. And once you get God, you can do everything. And just God does everything and humans do nothing. The Bible doesn't say that. At least it doesn't start that way. In fact, the Bible starts with this. Once humans enter into rebellion, listen to the language. And this is just what the scripture says. And, and here's an example. This is after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he teach, excuse me, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The scripture says that God says, I've made humans incredibly powerful. I've made them wonderful, and now they have the knowledge of good and evil, and now they've become like one of us which is that, that regal term, the us, could be the regal form of a king talks in that third person, or it could be God talking in terms of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what's so amazing about this language is this isn't, well, you know, humans have this knowledge, but they're worthless and meaningless and useless and depraved and can do nothing. The scripture is saying, God is saying, humans are incredibly powerful, and now they have knowledge, and now they're in rebellion, so we got to do something. So this isn't Satan doing something. This is what God does. Because humans are so powerful, God limits human capacity. And this is important to know. God limits our days on earth. God doesn't let us live forever. Because we're in rebellion. He doesn't let us live forever because now we have all this capacity. But now we can use that capacity for evil and wickedness and our own selfish devices. And because we'll do so much harm to creation and to each other, that God puts a limit on our lives. He limits our fruitfulness. He limits our... And if you look at the curses, there's a limit. He makes it harder for us to be fruitful, harder for us to work the ground, harder for us to procreate, harder for us to be fruitful. Because now we're dangerous. Now we're in rebellion. He doesn't do this because we're worthless. He doesn't do this because we're so depraved that we can't do anything without him. He does this because we can do amazing things without him. 
In fact, the scripture teaches exactly the opposite of humans are so depraved that without God they can do nothing. The scripture says without God they can do amazing things, so God actually uh, limits our capacity because the amazing things we can do are so harmful, they'll destroy others, they'll destroy ourselves, and they'll destroy his creation. And then look at the story of creation. So, so God uh, you know, basically kicks us out of the Garden of Eden. He puts death upon us, these curses of limiting our fruitfulness, our ability to, to multiply, our ability to reproduce, our ability even limiting us from his glory, the ability to use that glory for wicked purposes. And then what happens? Immediately evil, just wickedness, just covers the land because still we use this capacity for terrible purposes. And we get to Noah and the flood. And, 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 and you see here in Genesis 6, 5 through 8, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." In the flood narrative is the story that God says, I have to limit the fruitfulness of humanity because they are producing the fruit of rape and murder and wickedness because they, they have all this power, but they have no willingness to follow me. And so if you see, after the flood, the flood occurs and then God puts in this, this practical law afterwards, like, hey, if somebody murders someone, if someone takes someone's life, you take their life because there's just wickedness upon wickedness and at least we'll keep each other from harming each other too much because humans are powerful and they're dangerous. And then the next story is about God limiting the fruitfulness of humanity. We get to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is another story that talks about how amazing humans are, not how pathetic humans are, how amazing they are. And, and I can't reiterate this enough. When you talk to humans, you don't talk down to them. You talk about how amazing they are because that's how Scripture starts. Scripture talks about how amazing humans are, how wonderfully made they are, and then how dangerous we are when we're not surrendered to our Creator, when we're not connected to our Creator. Because we get to the Tower of Babel, and we get this story in the Tower of Babel of that humans that are not submitted to God but incredibly powerful are incredibly dangerous. This is what it says in Genesis 11.1. 1. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, now listen what the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God says, humans are so wonderfully made that now that they're working together, nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them to do. That is the opposite of what people preach. They'll say, you know, without God, you can't do anything. God says, these humans, without me, nothing will be impossible for them to do. But what he's saying is they will do wickedness and evilness, and the things they do will be for their own devices and for their own corrupted greed and for their own pride and for their own arrogance. The Bible talks about humans being wonderfully made, but wonderfully dangerous. God sees that these amazing humans that he has made, that he's given volition to, to make their own choices 
and to do their own things are gathering together to unite, to create their own city, their own tower, their own religion, their own faith, their own beliefs. And he says they are incredibly dangerous. He says, behold, they're one people. And what they will do, he says, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there, excuse me, he could go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So who confuses our language? God does. So the Lord disperses them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, I I wrote about this in my book, The Community of God, The Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, and this is from chapter 6, God Limits and Divides. And I just summarize the story of Babel this way. The story of Babel reinforces the Genesis narrative that rebellious humans working together are dangerous. The story implies that if God had allowed humans to work together, they would have collectively done more harm than good. As a united force with tremendous God-given capability, the residents of Babel embarked on a course that directly challenged the will and authority of God. Not only were they trying to build a great city, but they were building this city for their own glory. In pursuing their own purposes, the residents of Babel would have produced fruit hostile to God's plan for humanity. Understanding humanity's powerful ability to cause massive destruction and misery, God frustrated the language of humans. He gave people various languages and scattered them across the face of the earth. Instead of one united force hostile to God's purposes, humanity became a myriad of different languages and cultures. Interestingly, God lamented that the people of Babel were one people. Before the fall, we see the oneness of Adam and Eve as an expression of wholeness and completeness. Scripture portrays the creation of community as necessary for individuals to fully understand the love of God and the nature of love. After the fall, the Bible presents the oneness of the people of Babel as a recipe for hostility towards God. Babel's unity is not presented as an expression of love and mutual submission to God. Instead, the joint activity in Babel is an expression of humans united in their defiance of and independence from the purposes of God. Therefore, God frustrates their language and derails the path of their united rebellion. To understand human behavior, we must realize that depravity is different from powerlessness. Depraved and rebellious humans possess amazing power. Humans have been created to in the image of God. As his image bearers, God gave us the capacity to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, and to have dominion. Even after Adam and Eve sinned against God, humans still possess tremendous capability, so much capability that God began to frustrate the fruitfulness and effectiveness of humanity. He placed limits on how long we would live. He frustrated our ability to work and to communicate together. Genesis clearly articulates that God actively worked to prevent humans from uniting in their shared rebellion. This was done because of the powerful nature of his creation. I bring this up because it's important to know. 
And there, there is a whole tradition out there. There's a tradition that just from when kids are very young and they're even raised in these churches that again and again, it's just, you can do nothing without God. You can just do nothing. Nothing. You're just like the worthless gnat on the butt of a donkey and God is everything. Uh, it's not just about, people say like total depravity. Like It's not the idea of that I'm not just righteous outside of God. It's that I can just do nothing. There's nothing in my life that shows God's beauty. There's nothing in my life that images God. That literally humans just are meaningless, weak, useless, outside of complete surrender to God. The scripture does not say that. In fact, the Bible starts out with a very clear narrative. First, very clear. First thing God wants us to know, the first thing the Bible says about humans, we're made in the image of God, to image God on earth. We're made powerful, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion. When we were created, God thought that's the most important thing that he's created. He said, very good. And then when we rebelled against God, God was very concerned, not because we were weak, but because we were powerful. And so God limited our ability to live forever. He limited our ability to work together. And he scattered us. Because together and united as these powerful human beings, but separate from the will of God, we are dangerous. And it's important for us to know that. You're dangerous. I'm dangerous. It's also important to know this because we can do amazing things without God. And, and, and this is one of my problems. When we preach the gospel, you know what the gospel works really well? The kind of gospel we preach, it works really good for people who have nothing or are just destitute. It works really good for the person who, let's say, they're addicted to drugs and they can't get off drugs. And I've got friends like this. There's nothing wrong with this story. But what happens? You're addicted to drugs. You can't get off drugs. You start using your family. You steal from your parents. You lose your job. Eventually, people don't want to be with you. You have no place to go. You know, you lose your marriage. You lose your family. You lose your job. You lose everything. And then you come into the church destitute. You have nothing. And then we preach the gospel. We say, you know, God has come for a wretch like you and a wretch like me. And, and you have nothing. And your life is worthless in the sense of, you know, you have nothing to offer and, and God is going to be everything for you. And look what's happened on your own. You've lived your own life and your own life has led to nothing. And so surrender your life to God and God will be your everything and he'll, he'll be everything you need. And what happens? Their, their life, they yield to God and God forgives them of their sins and he restores them and they get on the path of recovery and they get back in relationship with God and healthy relationships with other people and and all the good things that happen from that happen, right? And they share their testimony. Now they now they have a good relationship, or now they're married, or now they're restored to the relationship with their family, and and now they have a job and an income, or whatever the fruit is of of going from that place of destitution to life. And we tell that story, and that story works with the narrative of without God you can do nothing. But that story doesn't work with the people who are succeeding without God. Because there are millions of people who are succeeding without God. You can live a life and, and get a good income. You can get a marriage and stay married. 
You can hang out with your kids and have a decent vacation. Enjoy hanging out together. Not be destitute. Not be drug addicted. Not be abandoned by everyone. You can hang out. Have a decent life. Enjoy things. Laugh. Have fun. Have meaningful discussions. Have a meaningful time. Feel spiritually connected in some ways. And not surrender to God. And if we come to them and say, you know, outside of God, there's nothing good in your life, that person's going to say, well, th- well, that's not true. There's good things in my life. This, this marriage seems to be good. And this job and the things I'm producing, you know, I, I wrote something the other day that seemed really good. I, that, that was good. And, and, you know, this song I listened to, I, I, I like that song. That song has meaning. And that person isn't a Christian, but that seems to be a good song. Are you telling me that unless a song's written by a Christian, there's no value in it? Are you, are you telling me unless art is painted by a Christian, there's no value in it? Are you telling me my life has literally no value? There's nothing in my life that has any good, that God does not exist at any level in my life? That I just have to admit that there's nothing in my life right now? And so that kind of gospel of that humans have nothing outside of God, outside of just complete surrender to God, is not attractive to the majority of Americans. See, the reality is we can image God without having God in our life. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says humans can have capacity but be dangerous. And we can be fruitful but not be surrendered to God. There's a different story. The different story is, yes, you do have a decent marriage, or at least, you know, there's love in your marriage, and there's love with your kids, and there's a job you like, and there's good things that you've created, and but there's a meaningless to your li- meaninglessness to your life, and you don't know why you exist, and you don't know why you're created, and, and you don't know what any of this is for. And you do have sin in your life, and you do have brokenness in your life. And even though there are good things in your life, you don't feel right with yourself and you don't feel right with God. There's that kind of depravity. That even though there's good in your life, you know it's not good enough for you to be right with God and right with others. And even though there's beauty in your life, you know that you're not right with God and right with others. And even though you have glimpses where you you believe you're connected with your the creator of the world, or you're connected in a more spiritual way, you know you're not right. And you need forgiveness, and you need restoration, and you need reconciliation. You know, at some level, you connect with others, and there's a meaningful connection, but you don't know how to abide in community that is truly centered in healing, healthy ways. The Bible starts with the story that God saw what he had made, these amazing humans, and because we chose not to follow him, he limited our fruitfulness. He made it harder for us to work the ground and harder to procreate, and he made it harder for us to work together. Now, this is not where the story ends, and, and in future shows I'm going to talk about the power of that through the cross he not only restored us in right relationship with him, with God, but he also made it so we could work together and come together. And that's why 
it's not just about becoming a Christian and getting our sins forgiven and going to heaven, that the restoration of the kingdom is being brought back into community. It's, it's the Tower of Babel being reversed. It's working together for purposes that are bigger than ourselves, for, for God-inspired purposes. It's coming together to reach every language group and every tribe and every nation and to, to do amazing things, to, to express and image the beauty of God on earth. And that's why we were created. It's God bringing us together through the cross, reconciling us, saying, hey, you can come together through the power of the Holy Spirit and do amazing things. And the resurrection life that will allow us to live forever with our Heavenly Father can be experienced today as we gather together, as we unite and work together for purposes larger than our individual needs and wants and selfish desires. You're wonderfully made. We are wonderfully made. Together, though, we can do tremendous harm outside of God. And that's why we need a theology where we bring God into our communities. We bring him into our marriage, into our families, into our relationships, into our church, into our communities, where we allow him to be the uniting force. Because we can be fruitful without him, but that fruit can be marred, it can be twisted. And even when we do good things, instead of giving God the glory, we begin to give ourselves the glory, and we begin to lift up men and women and worship people and worship idols and worship the fruit of our hands instead of worship the one who gave us this tremendous capacity. We'll talk about much more of this as we continue on. Okay, hey, if you're interested in this and you'd like more information, I'd love for you to read the book that I just released. It's called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. You can pick it up at Amazon in all forms. You can print it out to read it as a book. You can do it as a Kindle. Also, there's an audio book available. You can have signed copies through my website at fairlyspiritual.org. Today, we went over parts of chapter six, but there's so much more there as well. Uh, the theme music for the Fairly Spiritual Show is done by my little brother, Dan Bursch. You can check out his music on iTunes. I'll see you next time. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken by your word, your Holy Spirit's leading me, you are my only one, you're the only one worth living for, so I'm dreams with you.